Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're excited to have you here on the uh, Logistics with Purpose podcast series here on Supply Chain Now. Don't forget to um, hit subscribe wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts, and you'll find us always talking to people and organizations making a difference around the world. So if you like do-gooders and change makers and want to see the world a better place, then please be sure to tune in to the Logistics with Purpose podcast series on Supply Chain Now. And we are excited to welcome some of my friends and special guests guests today. Um, but first, before we get to them, I want to bring in my co-host for today, Monica Roche. Monica, how are you today? Hi, Christy. It's nice to say hi to you. Thanks for having me here today. I'm yes. so excited for this interview. Yes, this is going to be so fun. We're excited to do this. I'm here in Atlanta. Moni's in Mexico. Ashley and Henuk are in Atlanta right now, but Henuk is also visiting the U.S., so we have a very multinational podcast episode for you today, and as always, people doing good things. So um, Moni and I are really excited to welcome Ashley Bohans and Henuk, uh, I hope I say this right, Berhanu. Um, yes, you said correct. Oh, great. Yes, here <laughs> all the way from um, Ethiopia. So welcome, guys. I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for it having us. It is so us. good to be here. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, absolutely. Um, and more importantly, I love just chatting with you guys and going to your events and uh, introducing people to your products. So now we're excited to welcome an even more global audience to um, to Carry 117. So before we get there, you guys both have very accomplished backgrounds um, that led up to this co-venture between the two of you. So before we get to that, though, let's start off with a little bit about your background. So Ashley, tell us a little bit about where you grew up in your childhood. Sure. Um, I grew up in the greater Cleveland, Ohio area. Um, my family lived in a small town um, that was predominantly white, like 98% white and um, middle class to upper class. Um, and for me growing up, I mean, my family attended church regularly, um, and served regularly, but a huge part of my childhood was sports, uh, like a lot of people. And I, I traveled a lot for soccer and basketball, um, growing up. That's what I did all the time to a lot of different places, met a lot of different people. Um, yeah. So I, you know, growing up, I also played teacher all the time. I didn't like play baby Barbie wedding house. <laughs> I played teacher, gave the neighbors homework, got mad when they didn't do it. Like I always wanted, <laughs> I always wanted to be some kind of a teacher clearly. Um, and my parents fostered that for sure. Like they bought me like a whole, like old desks from a school, set up a whole classroom for me downstairs. And yeah, I would have like imaginary students. And then, you know, that turned into real students who I'm sure in their free time loved playing school with me after they got home from school, but whatever. <laughs> um, but I think my traveling in general started through sports and that was a huge thing. I was a super competitive kid. Um, I liked to, as an Enneagram three, yes. <laughs> at a young age. I was going to say, everything you've said speaks to your achiever. Yeah. Yeah. I, to the core, I wanted to break records. I wanted to make the best team. I wanted to be the best on the team. Um, a lot of, a lot of my childhood revolved around me. <laughs> Pretty selfish <laughs> in a lot of ways, if I'm being honest. Um, but my parents did, and I'll probably share this a little bit later, but my parents did an amazing job of instilling, like, look outside of yourself and serve other people who maybe don't have it as great as you in certain areas of life. Um, so I attribute a lot of that to my mom and my dad. 
um, for sure. And I look back and I see like I was always drawn to the underdog in situations. I was always drawn to the kid in the class who didn't have friends. And I always tried to befriend them. And I was always drawn to like, if there was an issue, I wanted to help make it right. I have a strong eight, even though I'm a three. Um, I wanted, you know, to include people. I wanted them to feel valued. Um, and I can kind of look back on my story and see that that started at a young age. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And knowing you now and for the last few years, then yes, that makes perfect sense. I can see <laughs> together. Um, Henek, I'm guessing your background was a little bit different. So tell us a little bit about. Quite, quite, quite different. <laughs> yeah, quite different. I mean, first of all, I want to thank you guys for uh, having me uh, on this podcast. It's really an honor uh, to be speaking uh, to you guys and just talking about, uh, you know, what I love to do in Carry 117. Uh, so thank you guys so much for uh, having me here. So I am Henok Brohanu, um, the founder and CEO of Carry 117. I was born and raised in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, um, so my mom was a single mom. She was 16 when she had me. Um, can't imagine, you know, being in, in a third world country uh, and having a baby uh, at 16. And uh, what was surprising is she actually escaped an arranged marriage to, to come from the countryside uh, to the city. So being 16, uh, being uneducated, uh, and, and, and coming to a city where she doesn't have anybody, uh, you know, to look up to or to mentor her, uh, and having a baby at that age, uh, I mean, can't imagine how difficult uh, it would be. Uh, so I did my um, school in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I was a uh, I was the class clown when I was a kid. Uh, I got in trouble a lot with uh, with uh, with my teachers. I also got in trouble with my mom because I remember I used to give my lunch away uh, to the kids that didn't have lunch. Uh, so you know, I've I've always kind of wanted to um, help or give out what I have or share what I had um, as a child. Uh, so that that got me in a little bit of trouble with my mom too. Uh, but when I was thirteen, uh, you know, my mom made uh, the sacrifice to. Uh, she called, I mean, she, it, it wasn't in her best interest, uh, but she had to send me to South Africa because she thought I would get a, a you know, a better education. And my, uh, my dad lived in South Africa. So she had to send uh, me to South Africa, uh, when I was 13. And that's where I did my middle school. Um, my time in South Africa wasn't, uh, amazing. Of course I got a better education there. And learned English. And learned English. Um, and I mean, being there really helped me polish my English. Uh, I mean, I didn't know my dad that well, so uh, it was difficult. I did not know English at all. So to just go there and, and be in, in a society that speaks English, it was really hard for me as a 13-year-old. I mean, being a teenager has its own things. And uh, imagine going to um, a culture that you have no idea of. Um, so it was a little bit difficult for me. Um, but uh, after attending uh, my middle school there, uh, about when I was 16, I came back to Ethiopia and uh, uh, finished my high school, also went to university, the University of Addis Ababa, and did my degree in business and economics. Um, so uh, as soon as I graduated, because in Ethiopia, the unemployment rate is so high and it's so hard to get a job, I didn't have a job for more than a year. Um, and and the best job that I could get was a job as a translator. Um, so I took that job. Um, my family wasn't too happy about it because, I mean, you can imagine I went to South Africa, did my uh, university, and then here I am uh, with a Bachelor uh, of Business and Economics, but I'm a translator. Uh, 
but you know, I, I felt like God had led me the right way because as a translator, I was translating for uh, adoptive families. I was translating for uh, missionaries. So I went through a process of hundreds of uh, adoption processes and I've been with uh, hundreds of mission uh, missionaries and mission teams. So I really learned, um, it, it really helped me to where to be where I am now. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit of my background. Well, you should never apologize for your English. It is superb, <laughs> right? That's what I tell him all the time. It is really, really good. Yeah. So Thank you. time Thank well you served. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it sounds really well. And I can relate a little bit with both of you in some stuff because I love sports while growing up, but also felt like Henoxes, like it was very important to try to help other children. And it's very nice that you shared what you had, even when you didn't have that much. So that's amazing. And so Ashley, looking back uh, a little bit, what is the story from your early years that shaped who you are and what you do now? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned, like my parents did an amazing job of instilling. I'm one of four children. And um, like every memory I have from my childhood usually has something to do with either sports or like a service project my parents had us do. Like my dad was the president of our local Rotary Club, which means every holiday season, my dad was in charge of all the Salvation Army red kettles in the whole entire county. And so as a family, we would make the schedules for who was going to serve at, at each of the kettles. And then we would drive around and collect all the kettles as a family. We would sit around a table and we would count, like roll all the pennies together in those rolls back in the day when you had to roll them, you know? Yeah. And so like, I remember doing that and I, and because he was the president of the Rotary Club, like our family was in charge of helping put on the whole like pancake breakfast for the whole community where kids could come and get breakfast and take pictures with Santa. And we would dress up in like, as like gifts and be around Santa's chair. And like, so like every year, these were like consistent things. We always looked forward to as a family, every holiday Christmas, we were buying gifts for less fortunate um, people than us. And it, you know, I remember Thanksgiving, we would be buying Thanksgiving meals for people and delivering them. Like my parents were, I like, I get chills talking about it because I don't think I've ever really realized how much they instill. Like it was always part of our family. Yeah. And, um, I think that stuck with me. And I think the pivotal moment for how I landed where I am, I'm, I graduated with my undergrad degree in school health education. My master's is also in education, but one class, because I'm a health teacher, um, one class that I took in my undergrad degree at Kent State University was I studied an entire semester on HIV AIDS because one of the units you teach as a health teacher is HIV AIDS. Um, and for me, I have no explanation besides I feel like this is just God put this wiring and passion in me because I didn't know anyone at the time living with HIV AIDS. And in that classroom for that semester, we studied like all of the theories of where HIV started, where all the effects the pandemic left, the way that that pandemic created a global orphan crisis in the world because it wiped out an entire generation of parents. Um, and we, although we talked about HIV AIDS in the United States, which is where I was living, we also talked about the impacts globally because that pandemic didn't play out the same way for each culture. And oh. I was riveted like riveted learning about it and learning about the transmission from a pregnant mother to a child during childbirth and how in certain cultures, 
living with HIV AIDS, well, in a lot of cultures, it was Mm -hmm. almost like you were outcast and you were looked down upon and people didn't want to associate with you. And I was like, that's so wrong. Like they didn't do anything wrong. Like, what do you mean there are kids growing up feeling like nobody wants to be near them? Like that, that's not right. Like kids should be with their families. They should belong somewhere. They shouldn't feel like they're not worthy. And I was like, just riveted by it. And so one of the theories that we talked about, like was where it all started. And for some reason I was drawn to the pandemic in Africa um, primarily because of the effects the pandemic left on the continent of Africa, something that I'm not sure that Africa will ever fully recover from. Um, and I remember in that classroom, like God birthed something in me, like I want to help. I don't want to be a health teacher who just teaches about HIV AIDS from a textbook. I want to know people who have HIV AIDS. I want to know what it's like growing up having it transmitted from childbirth. I want to know what it's like living with HIV. It's like, I'm going to be a way better teacher that way. And so I like, I remember when I got my first teaching job in Baltimore, Maryland, I remember going to the school board being like, okay, so I'm going to go to Ethiopia for a few weeks. I need you to give me time off. And they're like, um, you know, that's not really how it works as a teacher. I'm like, but listen, I mean, you tell me all the time as a teacher that I need to like create lessons where kids can experience something because they're going to retain that information longer. I'm like, the same thing is true for me as a teacher. I want, I don't want to just teach about this. Like, this isn't just information from technology. These are real life people. And I'm going to be a better teacher. If you let me go experience this and learn from people, I don't just want to know their disease. I want to know their name and I want to know their story. So I would say that was like a pivotal thing for me, that class um, for kind of opening my eyes to more of the world and like bigger injustices and bigger problems in the world than just what was in just my community. And I wanted to be part of it. I had no idea what that would look like though. So that's kind of definitely how I kind of landed where I am, at least the beginning. Well, actually that, that story really touched like my heart and the way you, you talk about it. I can tell that you really felt it. And of course it was something that was like getting you to, to where you are today and with all the passion and like determined person that you look like you are, it's great that you have not given up and said, no, I want to learn more because I mean, I know that the U.S. culture is a little bit more open than others uh, with this type of diseases, but there are others where, as you mentioned, they treat people like, yeah, they won't even get near to them. So I believe that we all deserve the same treat because we're persons. So I'm I'm just mm-hmm. amazed mm-hmm. and I want to know more about this. So, so Henok, now on your side, I mean, probably it's going to be, again, totally different from what Ashley told us, but... Uh, can you tell us how your worldview was shaped and another of your childhood experiences? I mean, what brought you here today? Um, yes, again, it's uh, it's a little different from Ashley's story. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, I I grew up with a single mom. Um, so my mom had me when she was 16. And again, um, you know, she was not educated. Uh, she just arrived to the city, a 16-year-old teenage mom having a baby. Uh, introduced to the city. Uh, she came from the furthest uh, countryside. You can imagine how confusing it could be at that time or how hard it could be at that time. Um, so with growing up with a single mom, uh, you know, uh, women are not the most privileged uh, people in Ethiopia already. So imagine being a woman, being a 16-year-old, having a baby, uh, just coming. It's just all the, you know, odds coming together. Um, so it was... We, we went through a hardship, um, you know, as a, as a kid. 
Um, and and one of the stories that um, that I always remember, I don't, I haven't shared this uh, publicly really, but um, um, one of the stories that I that I really remember and that really changed, you know, my worldview is as um, I remember when I was seven years old. Uh, like I told you, my mom didn't have a job, so we've always had uh, trouble uh, paying rent and being up to date with our rent. So um, this family that rented uh, their house to us, um, we owed them, I think, three or four months of rent. So, I mean, they basically live on that. So they were like, we cannot have you guys anymore. You guys had to leave. Um, so it was uh, it was in a it was in what we call a rainy season. So it was in a rainy season that we had to leave that house, uh, and we didn't have a house to go to. So we were just left the house, um, grabbed our belongings, um, which wasn't much really, a mattress and some clothes. Um, and there was there was a family nearby that just saw us walking and uh, that were gracious enough to offer their house to us. Uh, so I remember going into their house. Uh, it's a it's a big compound, uh, and in Ethiopia, most people have their kitchens on outside because there's a lot of cooking going on, and uh, you know just to keep the house clean, um, they they put their kitchen on the outside. So they were like, you can until you find a house, you can stay in our kitchen. So the kitchen has has a roof, but still rain would go through it. It didn't have uh, you know that uh, nice of a wall. Um, so it was um, it was a mud floor. So, you know, it would get wet when it was raining. So, I mean, I remember my, my, my mom holding the mattress up to just protect us from, uh, from the rain that was coming on us. Um, and I, I, mean, I remember as a child asking myself, why are we going through that? And I remember asking myself, I mean, those people were gracious enough to even give us their kitchen, but I, I, I saw across them, they had a big house and, you know, nice house considered in that area. Uh, and I was like, why couldn't we go in there, you know? Uh, so as a seven-year-old, there was just a lot of things going on in my head. Uh, and I can't imagine, uh, you know, how my mom felt at that time. Because, uh, I mean, she she felt like she couldn't provide for her child. Uh, I'm sure she felt like a failure, but, but uh, you know, that was happening uh, to us. Um, so I think just that story uh, and that really changed my perspective. Uh, of of you know what what a family should look like what how a woman should be uh, given an opportunity because uh, if if we go to Ethiopia's statistics about five or six there are about five or six million orphans um, that exist in Ethiopia and about seventy five percent of uh, those orphans uh, are single orphans which means that they have either a mom or a dad um, uh, existing which in most cases a mom is there but she can't provide for her child. So the child is forced to go out and, and provide for uh, itself or her, herself or himself and even for the family. So, um, you know, that really changed uh, my perspective. And I've, I've always, since I was a child, uh, felt like women should be given an opportunity. Um, I, have, I have the strongest mom ever. Um, I mean, I have, I have the strongest mom ever. Um, I mean, she means the world to me and she is strong. She raised me up to, to, to where I am right now. And if she had been given more opportunity, I think she would do so much more. So, I mean, that's how K-117 was born. And, and, and that is why we are all about empowering at-risk women, whether single moms or widows or you know, women that should be given opportunity. 
and you know we're all about empowering women and keeping families uh, together. So, you know that that I guess my childhood and my mom and, and uh, all those things have shaped up uh, you know my worldview uh, on how the world should operate and and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was amazing. Your mom sounds like an incredible person. So she is. Um, she is yeah, sure. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. So you talked a little bit about, um, let's fast forward a little bit and talk a little more about your professional journey. So um, Henrik, tell us a little bit more about kind of what led up to um, kind of the, the things you did before Carrie 117 and before you and Ashley started on this crazy adventure of yours. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, before, uh, I, as I told you before, again, um, I, I, I got a job to be a, a translator at an organization and I was a translator for the first couple of years. And then I quickly moved up, moved up to the ladder and, and got to be a, a director. Um, so, uh, it really, you know, that really helped me in my professional, uh, it really, uh, connected me with people. Uh, it really, uh, connected me with what it means or with ways uh, on on how I can serve my community, uh, and that's how you know K one seventeen was started. Uh, as soon as this organization um, uh, you know shut down, I started K one seventeen. It was it was it was a big process of starting K one seventeen. Ashley was there uh, the whole way, um, and we started with one woman. So I when I worked with, with the organization before, we had seventy nine employees. And we, you know, when that organization had to shut down, all the 75 employees, uh, you know, uh, lost their jobs. And it was all mostly single moms and widows. Uh, it was people who uh, we, uh, we worked in, in, in a small town called Cora, and there's huge garbage dump uh, uh, there. And a lot of these women worked on that garbage dump. And, uh, you know, while they were working for this organization, uh, it was just... Uh, it changed their lives and, uh, you know, they had an, a stable income, but when it closed down, it meant that they had to go back to the trash. Uh, some of them had to go back to the street. So, you know, as a person who cares for single moms, uh, as a person who thinks uh, uh, single moms should be empowered or women in general should be empowered, it was just hard for me to walk away from. So uh, it, I didn't have the means and the income to start an organization, but uh, uh, with a lot of people's help, I, I started Care 117 with one woman and with one sewing machine. Uh, we have uh, 20 women that we're uh, helping now. Uh, we've came across where we've empowered about 45 women in general. Uh, so we've we've came we've came far um, uh, within the last six years. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Ashley, I know you talked about being a health teacher, but <laughs> I know you've done a few things in between that, um, yeah. Gary 117 and are still doing a few things in between that. So tell us more about your professional journey. So, as I said, I, um, was a middle school health teacher, sixth through eighth grade, all the fun stuff. Um, and my first trip to Ethiopia was when I was still a full-time teacher. Um, and I remember when I got back from my first trip, I went for two weeks and got went with an organization where I got to see a lot of different organizations in the work they were doing, some really great work, some not so great work. But one thing that I learned, number one, was I couldn't fix any of the problems. <laughs> like I wasn't Jesus. I wasn't their savior. But two, that education and opportunity were such a huge way to help. Like that was the way out of poverty in a way. And um, so I remember coming back from that first experience 
And I didn't want it to be a one-time experience. I'm like, I cannot, I can't know of these injustices and I can't, I can't fathom how all of this is happening on the same planet. Like in my country, I'm asking for a new cell phone and all this stuff. And then on the other side of the world, somebody's asking for my bottle of water and a pair of shoes because they can't go to school without shoes. Like I can't, I couldn't make sense of that from my upbringing. I'm like, what? I don't want, I also don't feel like God wants us to feel guilty about those things. And so I was going through the process of, I don't need to feel guilty. I just need to be generous and a good steward of the resources and the connections I've been given. I remember going back to my classroom and showing pictures of my experience and talking about how they do school in Ethiopia and all the things I learned exactly as I told my school board I would. And one of the cool, this is just a side note, but I have a student who is in my class in middle school who heard me come back from my first trip and talk about it. And she's now one of like the number two in charge in our organization on the US side. And so she stayed involved and with the whole journey. And she's 23 years old now. And she was 10 or 11 at that time. And so pretty cool, just the whole circle. I have chills talking about that. Anyways, mm. so I feel like that experience was when I first felt called into full-time ministry, vocational ministry, but I didn't actually know that would mean leaving my teaching job because I had two degrees in it. I was tenured. I like, I'm like, this will just be something I do on the side as a passion project. Well, you know, God just had other plans. So I wrestled with God for a while, ended up the middle school pastor job opened at the church I had been volunteering at. Um, and so they kept for a year, they were trying to convince us in the same community. I was a teacher and I was also a soccer coach. So same community. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I love my job. I'll be the number one volunteer forever. It's no problem. And, um, God had different plans, ended up taking that job as a middle school pastor for several years. Um, and during that time was when Carrie 117 was birthed. Um, and what I, I think, I know ministry can be in any context, but one of the things I really learned going into full-time ministry, especially youth ministry, was that women aren't always empowered in the same way men are empowered in vocational ministry and in the church, um, which is something I'm really trying to change and help change. Um, but it was really my first time. Like I never knew I could ever work in a church because I, I wanted to be a teacher, but I never knew I could use those gifts in a church. And so similar to how he learned about the importance of women empowerment, I felt that way. I'm like, teenage Ashley should have seen a woman standing up there using her gift because then I would have known it was possible. Like representation is everything. And so I would say in ministry, that's where I really started to feel that rumbling. I just had to kind of awaken to it. At first, I was just like thankful to have a seat at the table, thankful to be there, and then started to notice some of the inequality that happened. Um, And then from there, I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia, um, to work at a church in Atlanta, uh, while I was also starting work for a company called Orange, um, which is where I currently work full-time. Um, Orange is an organization that creates resources for anyone who works with the next generation curriculum um, for youth ministries. I specifically work the middle school department, but also resources for parents to help partner with parents because they're the number one spiritual influence in their kid's life. Um, And we create all kinds of resources. And I love this role because I feel like I pull from my years as a youth pastor and I pull from my years as a teacher in creating resources to help equip and empower people to be the primary influence on a kid's spiritual journey. Um, And through all of those professional careers and opportunities, I've been able to network with a lot of people. That's how I met you, Christy. Um, And I, I think it's amazing because as Carrie 117 was born, um, which is when I was still in Maryland as a youth pastor before I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, 
um, we were able to have a whole network of people around us cheering cheering everyone on. I also served at, before Carrie Winston, he was born, I also served at the ministry that Hanok used to work at, which is how I met Hanok. And I was part of it being shut down and being heartbroken by it and being like, this feels like it, this could have been handled way differently. This is this is not the kind of help I want to be part of. Like this isn't. And so watching him kind of be like, no, I want to own it. I want to start it. Like, will you help me? And I'm like, I'm in like, for sure. I want you to own it as a national to Ethiopia. I'll do whatever I can to help. Um, and so I, I'm happy for that opportunity because I wanted that mission team experience to be more than a moment. I wanted it to be a movement in my life that I could be part of. Um, and it's just cool to see like just the journey God has brought both of us on and all that we've learned in it. Wow. So I, I, this is an open question. I wanted to ask you guys, like, how did you meet? But you just mentioned it. I don't know if, if Hannah, you'd like to add something to that story? Because, I mean, I cannot imagine you both coming from totally different worlds and then getting to know each other. I mean, I don't know if you got along well uh, since the beginning or, or, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about how you met before before? going yeah, along with the journey. Absolutely. I mean, um, so like Ashley mentioned, uh, we met on a mission trip. So I was a hired as a translator. So I was a translator for the team that she brought. And that's basically how we met. And and uh, no, it has not been easy. Um, I mean, coming from two totally, you know, different cultures and, uh, yeah. you know, coming to from two different business backgrounds and all of that, it was just uh, communication was hard. Um, cause you know, English is not my first language. I don't know the culture. I don't know how business is done. I don't know how mission is, is done. Um, so we, we decided to partner with each other, uh, you know, when Ashley said yes to, uh, be part of here 117, um, till this day, you know, it, it's not easy. It's not easy, but I think that's where the best, uh, partnership, uh, you know, comes from is, as I, I am an Ethiopian, I'm an Ethiopian national. I know how best works in Ethiopia and I know our culture. I've been in Ethiopian for 34 years. And so I she trusts me on, you know, on, on my inputs and I trust her on her inputs here. Um, so, I mean, we basically met uh, for, you know, we're for the, same, uh, for the same mission and vision, uh, but we do have two, uh, you know, different backgrounds and um, <clears throat> it's, it's not easy colliding two uh, uh, cultures together and trying to uh, work for the same goal. Uh, but we make it work because uh, we we believe in the same mission. We because we believe in in, in empowering women and putting families uh, together, and and we uh, believe in sustainability. So uh, I mean that's how we met. We met in a, through uh, mission uh, trips as I was a translator and she was a leader uh, for the group. And uh, you know it's been ten years since we met. And K one seventeen is is doing well because two people from two countries from two different cultures have decided to come together for the same mission and vision. I want to add a little bit to that too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's been such a gift to me um, as much as we've had to fight through a lot of things in communication and our viewpoint on something. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're 10 years and over a year of like, we've like done the math. It's been over a year of time of where we physically spent time together on the same continent in the same room. 
Um, it's like 17 trips later for me and seven trips seven. later for you. Um, I would say I, nothing has sharpened me more as a human and opened my eyes to the way that I see the world and the way that my upbringing has influenced. Like we can talk about a certain situation, like as basic as um, what you do with your bath towels when you're sitting in a guest house and the way he sees it and the way I see it, like we can miss each other and be like, hold on. Is this like a cultural thing right now? Like, let's talk about this. Like in your culture, what does that mean? Okay. In my culture, what does that mean? There's just been nothing more sharpening and I think I've learned a lot about like what's biblical versus what's cultural and how mm. much I've, I, I feel like the more I learn, the more I realize I know, I know nothing. <laughs> I don't, I don't know anything. Yeah. And I think it's also just opened my eyes and I know you feel this way too, mm. just like to a God who's a God of all nations and all cultures and what that means. And one isn't more important than another. Um, regardless of what material things that you have or what upbringing you have. Um, so it's been so humbling. I've learned a lot about not just Ethiopian culture and not just about God, but about my own culture. It's hard to know how to talk about your own culture until you have something to contrast it with. Um, so it's been such a gift for me. It's just, it's just wonderful. And yeah, I can totally relate. Whenever I, I meet someone from different cultures, it's like, I want to learn more and more. And it's just like, I keep asking questions and hope they don't get uncomfortable, but they also ask the questions. So we're okay. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. I really like it. And it's nurturing. Too. So Ashley, sorry, going back again to the professional journey of Kerry, uh, one <laughs> 17. Um, how did you decide that the best thing was to sell accessories as a solution for caring of orphans and, and to empower these women and helping other families in Ethiopia. Why these type of products? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so one of the main exports in Ethiopia is leather. Le Ethiopia is known for their leather, which a lot of people don't know. In fact, Italy gets a lot of their leather from Ethiopia because Ethiopia has one of the largest livestock populations in the world. Um, and so when we started, we wanted to, as much of our material, we wanted it to be indigenous to Ethiopia so that we could support the economy, but also so that we had access to raw material in a like quick way mm -hmm. and sustainable way. Um, and because there's access to so much leather, we decided, I mean, we didn't start with leather. We started with recycled burlap because we weren't good enough at sewing yet to <laughs> start with. We would have ruined the leather at that point. So we started with recyclable, uh, like rice and coffee, coffee burlap, burlap. Yeah, yeah. Um, started with that line of product, which we still have roots in that line of product. Um, and it went really well. And then as we got better at sewing, we kind of moved into the leather area because Ethiopia was trying to promote like smaller businesses and social enterprises to do more work with leather because mm -hmm. it's such an important export to the country. Um, and so we, you know, as Hanak was talking and I was talking about just the importance of empowerment and it, it, empowering at-risk women. And you also mentioned the orphan crisis in Ethiopia, five to six million orphans, 75% of those are single orphans, not double orphans, single orphan, meaning one of their parents is still alive, but that parent was selfless enough to drop that child off at an orphanage so that mm. somebody else could raise it, which if, you, if you're a parent listening, you can imagine how difficult that decision would be. And when you hear Henoch's story, 
like his mom, Yetam, is like the mo- one of the strongest women I've ever known. I love her so much. And I think to myself what she went through to raise him as a teenager herself. And it would have been a lot of people are in a situation like that and have to give their child up. And so we, we said, we never want a woman to ever have to make the decision that I have to give my child up because I can't provide for them. You know, you heard his story for that reason. And so we thought, what if we hire women? Cause finding a job was hard. What if we train them because they're uneducated, a lot of them. So how do we teach them how to read numbers and hold a pair of scissors and measure something and cut something because when you're able to produce something and you have a skill, it restores dignity to someone who feels like they have nothing to offer. And so what if we hire them, teach them, train them, and then make products, export them around the world. Um, It's primarily to the United States right now, but we have some partners in Europe and Australia that we're exporting to as well. Um, And then we sell the product and the women then earn a paycheck and it's not a handout. It's a hand up. It's a job. It's dignifying and they can care for their children through the fruits of their own labor. Um, They can send their own children to school. They can feed their own children with no problem. And so that's why we kind of, we decided on bags. Um, That's what carry, one of the reasons we named it carry when something is products that carry things. Um, And we chose leather because it's indigenous to Ethiopia and Ethiopia is known for it. So it's easily accessible. And a lot of times animals Um, when they eat the meat, there's a lot of leftover skins. And so we're using material that's already existing um, and trying to Uh use it in a way that uses every piece of that material. So it's not wasted. So, yeah. You want to add anything to that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, we've been, so like Ashley mentioned, uh, we started off with, uh, with burlap and then kind of slowly moved moved into the leather because, you know, Ethiopia, I think it has a lot to do with the weather. Uh, Ethiopia has the best leather in the world. So we wanted to always incor- uh, also incorporate that into uh, the products that we're uh, making. Um, it hasn't always been an easy journey uh, making products and shipping them here. Um, like that, we, we faced a lot of uh, difficulties uh, in, in all of that. Um, um, finding raw materials, uh, finding zippers, accessories, uh, it was just not easy, but um, with with the hard work of communication and, and trying to brainstorm what we can do uh, to to uh, avoid those problems, uh, I think we've done a good job at uh, being where we are right now. Absolutely. And I, since talking to you guys, when people talk about buying leather and things like that, I'm like, oh, did you know? <laughs> and I tell them all the right? things you guys have said about Ethiopia and everybody's totally surprised because they think it's Italy. So yeah. we just, we just had a, um, one of our partners in Australia reach out and said, I brought my bag in to have like an additional, um, clip added to it because I wanted it to close differently, whatever. And she was like, the guy has his own leather shop. He's been doing it for 25 years. And he said to me, where did you get this bag? Mm-hmm. And she was like, Ethiopia. And he goes, I've been working in leather for 25 years and I've never seen leather like this. He said, this leather is the kind of stuff you put in your will. It will literally last forever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we need to write that down. Yes. Testimonial. Yes. Put that guy on video. Uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. That's incredible. So Henek, now let's talk about some of your favorite things. So talk about the names of your products. Cause I wanted that mentioned. And then um, just tell some success stories because you guys have some incredible success stories. Uh, 
Yes, I mean we've we've uh, we've empowered forty seven uh, women till this day uh, in our existence of six years, uh, and and I can tell you every story is different, and every story we consider a success story. Uh, all these forty seven women have amazing amazing stories, um, but. Uh, one of the stories is, is with Medhanit, her name is Medhanit, um, we call her Medi, uh, who's currently our supervisor, um, which, uh, whom I've met six years ago. So uh, I remember uh, standing in our compound, uh, she walks in, uh, she has a baby on her child, she, she sits on the corner um, and tries to get somebody to try, try, try to get somebody to talk to her. Um, we we at least get three or four people every day uh, coming and knocking on our doors and, and asking for a job. So, um, you know, we, we have a, a waiting list that we, uh, that we put them on. Um, and I think one of the most difficult things uh, that I have to face in our line of work is, is choosing who to hire because you get people that would come and say, I have three kids, I have two kids, I can't provide, I need a job. So just, you know, choosing who to hire is the most difficult thing, but I remember uh, Madhani's story. Um, so as I go to her and ask her, you know, what she needs, uh, first of all, I noticed that she has a baby that's malnourished, uh, such a little baby. And I proceed asking her, you know, how she makes living and, and where she is uh, in life. Uh, she tells me she doesn't have a home. She doesn't have, um, she doesn't have a way to provide for her child. And currently she tells me that she goes to people's houses, knocks on doors and asks them for a job, like for a day job, if she can clean their house, if she can wash their clothes or if she can cook or anything, uh, which isn't really sustainable. They don't know her. They don't want to let her into the, the, their house. And she doesn't, she, she can't make a living off of that. So uh, because her story was like, it, it was hard for me to just walk away from her and, and just say, we're going to put you on a, on, on a list and uh, send you away. So we hired her as a, as a cleaner. Um, she did an amazing job as a cleaner. She was on time, she was passionate. Uh, and, and so we had, we promoted her uh, to be, um, to, to learn how to sew uh, because I mean, okay. she, she walked after me, uh, she walked after me and, and told, told me that uh, I wanna be, I wanna be, I wanna make a bag. So she had to learn how to cut, she had to learn how to measure, she had to sit on a sewing machine for a very first time and learn how to sew. And I remember her making it a goal to be the best sewer uh, at, at KRE 117. So, I mean, fast forwarding the story, uh, Mehdi came from uh, a woman that did not have any job, that did not know how to cut or how to measure or even how to like know numbers to a person that is, that is running the entire organization and the entire production room now. She, she actually has went just above from being a, a, a supervisor to being a trainer. So she trains uh, people that enter K117. So, I mean, that alone itself, not only uh, she's able to provide for, for her child and put food on a table and send him to school, but it's, that's dignity restored there. And, and, and she had confidence. I mean, when we met her, she couldn't even look us in the eyes um, I mean, and I mean, she, she runs a pretty tight ship at <laughs> right now. Uh, so, um, and, I mean, the other goal that she made, I remember was, um, was her son is Yapsara. So 
he uh, he entered the kindergarten. Uh, uh, and at the end of the kindergarten, a lot of people uh, would throw parties. A lot of the rich people would throw parties for their kids. And Mary has never imagined doing that for her child. So uh, when she uh, was hired as a sewer, she was like, uh, so my kid has entered kindergarten right now. Uh, at the time of uh, his third year, when he graduates uh, from kindergarten, I want to throw a party for him. So she saved for three years and, and threw a party for, for Yafsara, which was an amazing accomplishment for her, um, which was really amazing. We loved being part of that. So, yeah. I mean, that's one of uh, the success stories. That, and there's a that, bag named after Mehdi, the yes. Mehdi bag. And then also her son, Yabsara, we call him Yabu. There's a, like a lanyard, an ID wallet. So we name our products after people so we can share some of their story, not just their history, but like their growth and their mm -hmm. excitement. And I love that Yabu, he graduated at the top of his class. And so, and on the card, we have like little quotes from the people the bag is named after. I think he says something like, my mom's the boss, and one day I want to be the boss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he loves the fact that his, his mom is the boss, and he always brags about that. Oh, which is adorable, which I'm sure you see yourself in him, because he's your age that oh, you, absolutely. of when you told that absolutely. story. I mean, uh, you know, every woman that, that I see there and every child that I see there, I feel like it's a, a reflection of me when I was a child. So I just, I, I love, I love that. I think that's what really gives me energy to do care 117 is to just walk in and see the kids, uh, to see the, the, the women eating together and laughing and enjoying life and, and being, you know, had that fellowship and being there for each other, uh, I think is what really motivates me and, and energizes me. Amazing. And how many did you say are, uh, women are employed right now? 20 women uh, that, uh, that we employ currently, uh, but in the past uh, six years, uh, we have empowered 47 women. Uh, and uh, and and them providing, I think we had uh, 57 people in total that were impacted uh, directly or indirectly by Care One Seventeen. Like they were, well, there's like 57 dependents on those 40 or on those 20, 20 women yeah. right now. And I think that's one of the things we've had to learn is like every woman that we come in contact with doesn't mean that she'll be there for the long haul. We may have her for a year. We may have her for three years. Mm -hmm. or six months. And during our time, we try to be as good of stewards as possible in terms of like, how can we equip them and empower them? And when they are ready for whatever's next, whether that means starting their own business or whether that means they don't want to work because they want to get married and have children, or they're going to move to a different part of the city. We're like, mm -hmm. so supportive of that, whatever they want to do, how can we give them as many skills so that take them with them? And like one of the things about Medi, actually all of the women we partner with the Ethiopian Leather Institute and they came in and did a whole training with all of our women. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. all the women have a certificate of training from the Ethiopian Leather Institute. So Matt, no matter how long they stay with us, they take that with them. And like for the rest of their life, they're going to have a skill that they can get a job regardless if they work for mm -hmm. us or not. Mm -hmm. We're really in existence for women who maybe don't want to own their own company right now, but they just want a job with a steady income that's predictable so that they can, you know, mm -hmm keep their family together and, and prevent orphans in Ethiopia. So. Incredible. Thanks guys. Let's talk a little bit about the lessons learned. Um, guys, this interview has been amazing. I just want to keep knowing more and more about you. <laughs> you guys are awesome. So Thank you. yeah, you have mentioned that you have some challenges with the raw material and stuff like that. Um, working at logistics. I know that 
there are a lot of supply chain difficulties in the way. So can you tell me a little um, more or well, a couple of stories about your biggest challenges, especially Ooh, yeah. when sourcing, shipping, and how do you solve them? Or how do you plan to solve them if these problems are happening right now? Oh, good question, Monica. Um, all right, you want me to start? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I would say raw materials, um, it is so challenging in general. And then you add the COVID-19 pandemic on top of it, it's even more challenging. And then you add the um, instability of Ethiopia's economy on top of that, it's even harder. Um, but specifically like some of the challenges, the materials we use, the cotton is hand woven on a loom. It's made and everything there, the leather is made there, but things like the, the stuff that cleans the leather or dyes the leather at the leather factory, it runs out. And so we have trouble sometimes getting a certain color leather for a period of time because the supply chain for the leather factory that we partner with, because that meant that chemical isn't is imported um and so we, we have problems with that the other thing is um ethiopia multiple times has run out of foreign currency and when that happens we can't import nothing gets imported into the country for a period of time mm -hmm. when that happens mm -hmm. like everything that we make um is indigenous ethiopia except for the hardware for the purses like that's not made we're unaware of a place in ethiopia that makes the hardware that is um, strong enough for the leather and will last as long as the material. Um, and so we depend a lot on buying the hardware from shops in Ethiopia that they import it from wherever they import it from, mm -hmm. um, different places. And so when the country runs out of foreign currency, there's nothing coming into the country. And so we're talking about hardware issues where it's like, we can't find the clasp or we can't find the buckle. And it's like, this buckle is supposed to be half an inch wide, but now it needs to be an inch because that's all we could find. And so like the consistency of finding hardware has been so challenging and the, the lack of predictability in terms of like when it happens um, versus when an order comes in. And so for a short period of time, um, we were shipping some hardware from the US when we couldn't find it in Ethiopia. At the same time, trying to find um, a a factory in China that had ethical work standards, people that we trusted um, so that we could put in bulk order of hardware and import our own hardware because he has an import export license mm -hmm. um, in Ethiopia. And so I would say right now, we're literally like our stuff is on a ship right now, our hardware being imported from China to Djibouti mm -hmm. and then driven from Djibouti to Ethiopia is our very first time doing that. Yeah. Um, but we're really, really happy with the, um, factory that we have partnered with. It was a contact made through people we trust. And, mm -hmm. um, one of the, so I would say that is like a big thing. That's, for yeah, us. that's definitely a, you know, a huge challenge. Uh, one of the things that within the past three years that we constantly have to deal with is, is the logistics and finding raw materials. We made it a, a principle like here at 117 that we want to use as much as we can indigenous materials. We, we want to uh, help the economy uh, and, and make sure that it's ethical by purchasing everything that, that, that goes into the bag um, in Ethiopia. But whenever um, it is difficult to, to do that because uh, we're 
we're trying to uh, get to a point where we make, you know, a quality enough uh, material, uh, leather product uh, and have to choose what kind of zipper, what kind of uh, uh, buckles that we're using. So um, it's, it's even difficult, like Ashley said. So the products are sold in the U.S. Uh, they're made in Ethiopia. We're trying to get um, uh, hardware from China. So that just just kind of working around that, uh, we have a we have a huge shipment coming from China right now, which is sitting at customs at the border and just getting that into the country uh, where you know bureaucracy is a lot. It could take it's it's actually it has actually taken more than eight or nine months just to uh, do this, and it hasn't even. Uh, arrived at uh, at our hand yet, so um, that is a very difficult thing, and that's always uh, the thing that we're trying to work through and process. We were trying to, you know, get it from uh, U.S. Uh, whenever we can't find it in, in Ethiopia, but that, uh, you know, was expensive. So we're trying to have it come from China. So it's just these are a lot of hurdles that we always constantly uh, are having to uh, manage. And in addition to that, I would say the shipping has been so difficult international shipping and the trade lane between Ethiopia and the U.S. specifically is one of the most expensive in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so even with a nonprofit account um, on this side, it doesn't, it's, it's so expensive. So for people who place bulk orders or custom orders, um, the shipping is always <clears throat> so difficult. And so we've experimented with several different organizations like one of our first we started with FedEx because we weren't producing enough product ahead of time like our speed of production um to like send it on a boat or something like that we just weren't ready for that so it started with FedEx but one of the things that we felt tension in is the FedEx in Ethiopia and the FedEx in the U.S. don't talk to each other they're not act, uh, like a connected organization and so it would be like a nightmare for us because they were like, well, we shipped it. It's not our problem. They're like, well, we have no idea because we didn't ship it. And the systems don't talk to each other. And it was like trying to get the paperwork, trying to get it through customs. I, I shout out to FedEx. Thanks for helping us in the beginning. You taught us a lot, but sorry, we're not doing business anymore. Um, and then we transitioned to DHL, um, another, and that was way easier because their systems talk to each other in the Ethiopian US. So it was much cleaner still too expensive for us. Um, and so we actually just right now, this entire pandemic, Ethiopian Airlines, which is the largest Ethi or a largest airline in Africa, Addis Ababa is the home of the African Union. So a lot of people travel there, why the airlines have blown up there, which is great. Um, they closed down their cargo shipments the entire pandemic and the pandemic quadrupled the cost of shipping with DHL. So it was really, really stressful for us. Um, there were a lot of things we just couldn't, we couldn't um, deliver it on time, the time at table they wanted, because we had to make sure it was a large enough shipment to be able to afford the shipping for it during a pandemic. Um, and so Ethiopian cargo, Ethiopian Airlines cargo just reopened. And so we're in the process. We literally just shipped our first two shipments through Ethiopian Airlines cargo and learning the process of getting it through customs. And do we need an agent? Can it be a person? Like, what are the fees associated with it? And it feels so far for the first two shipments we've been practicing with has been a significant reduction in cost that we were not able to benefit from prior. Um, and I'm sure we're still kind of learning that. So if anybody has any tips for us, like, <laughs> please email us. We're trying to figure this problem out right now. We, we don't, we don't know the answer fully. 
Yeah. Um, but we're trying to move forward because the other tension is, is can we drive the price of the wholesale product low enough that small, bo- small expensive boutiques have enough margin to upsell it? Um, or churches who want to order something in bulk, it's a low enough price point that they can order in bulk with their nonprofit budget. Um, and trying to get people in the supply chain to understand, like, we're not going to be the cheapest option ever. And the reason we are not going to be the cheapest option is because we pay really well and fair, not just a minimum wage, but a living wage and above. And we have a lot of programs that are benefit packages to the women, medical savings account, savings matching, like all these things that the women have in their, their salary and their deal. And so um, trying to get people to understand that, like, you don't want to pay for it up front. If you don't pay for it up front in the world, somebody across the world will pay for it because the lack of money they're being paid to produce mm-hmm. it, or the person mm-hmm. who made the material is getting ripped off. And so getting people to understand, like, I know this is probably $3 more a bag than what you could buy in on Amazon or mm-hmm. Alibaba or whatever, like, but we can guarantee you the ethics of our organization and the people we work with. I don't even know, Christy, if I was able to tell you this yet, but we just completed a 15-month process with the World Fair Trade Organization and finally got our stuff accepted, which is so huge for us. We've always been fair trade, but now we are certified in it. Um, And so we're in the process of kind of being able to add their logo to our stuff and that stuff. Fantastic. Congratulations on that. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Um, and then I don't know if you quickly want to mention too, you guys were obviously just from the conversation, people can tell how resourceful you are, but you also made a very quick pandemic pivot as well. So I don't know if you guys want to talk about a little bit of how you made the shift and what you were doing during the, although not we're, we're not out of it, but um, how you quickly made the transition and what you were up to. Yeah, um, I mean, this pandemic has been difficult for us because we are, you know, we primarily uh, depend on what we sell. Um, so, and the profits that come from selling. So, and, and we had four uh, avenues on how we sell our products, which is boutiques, uh, a church, and uh, uh, and online products. Uh, and in Ethiopia, that you know, I the other thing besides uh, K one seventeen, what I do is I have a guest house that you know for missionaries and for adopted families. So. Those missionaries and adoptive cam- families that come to uh, Ethiopia would purchase products from us. So uh, there were those four avenues were uh, how we basically sustained Carry One Seventeen. And but because of the uh, pandemic, nobody was traveling. So uh, the people who came to Ethiopia, the adoptive families or, or, or missionaries, um, didn't come, and we didn't make any sales. That literally went, you know, to zero. Um, and church. We're not selling our products here. There were no conferences happening here. Uh, boutiques were closed down here. So uh, we basically um, lived, uh, sustained off of uh, what we sold online. So we really have to shift um, what we what we were doing uh, because one of the things uh, I come here is is to do house parties and and to attend conferences and to talk at church and and do table sales. Uh, because all those things were not happening, we really had to uh, reinvent the wheel uh, and and do uh, instead of doing a house party, we did an online party. Uh, so we did uh, we invited people to come online, and we, where I talk about Carry One Seventeen, uh, and we did Zoom meetings. Uh, so we really had to 
reinvent the wheel uh, during this pandemic uh, because we had to sustain ourselves in another way. So yeah, we definitely had to make a lot of shifts. I was also going to say, like, there was a lot of conversation during this time because business like slowed down so much. You know, there's this constant tension in a social enterprise of like, there's the business side of it. And then there's the do good side of it. And depending on what side you're talking about, depends on like what side the, the volumes turned up on what. And during this time, the need in our community that we serve was we need masks made. And mm. the local hospitals had no protective equipment. So they were asking anyone who has a sewing organization, can you make hazmat suits for our doctors and our nurses? And so we had to have a real conversation and say, we need to make money. Like, because we're a self-sustaining organization, we have to sell product. But right now the product's not moving. And what's more important is that the women feel like they're helping their community and their country survive a pandemic. Like how dignifying and empowering is that to go from feeling like you have nothing to offer to being like, I'm making the equipment to save people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so all like we partner with a bunch of the organizations in the area. Like we don't compete with people. We partner with people. And so we reach out to everyone and said, how many masks do you need? How many masks do you need? We made masks for all our organizations in our community and then made masks to give out to people in the community. Um, we made hazmat suits for local, multiple local hospitals and doctors and nurses. And although it was hard because it put us in a situation where we weren't bringing any money in, mm -hmm. but we were doing good in our community and our community needed the skill that these women had to serve them. And it was, I think really like almost like shockingly powerful to them to feel like they could make a difference in that way. And it was so cool to yeah. cheer them on in it and just know that God's going to take care of our organization through this. We just need to be good stewards of what we have. I, I just love the chills listening with you. <laughs> and the suits were pretty cool looking. You can go on Instagram and see a picture of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hennick, I know you've been at this a long time and um, have gone through, as you guys just talked about, some of the challenges that you've worked through and are still working through. So for anybody else who's interested in starting um, a social impact company, a social enterprise, um, either as a side gig or their main gig, just what kind of lessons learned um, would you give them and what kind of advice would you uh, say this is kind of what you need to think about on the front end? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I know we kind of brushed up on it uh, before, but I think one of the important one of the important things that I've learned in my past, especially in the past six years of doing here 117, uh, is uh, on how uh, businesses are run. Um, so for those people who are thinking uh, or starting an international business, um, is that I think the best. I think the best thing on uh, on how K117 was successful uh, was that because it was run by a national in Ethiopia and uh, and it is run by um, a, a national in America. So um, one of the things that uh, the organization that I worked before uh, failed was because it was actually owned by an American and run by an American, but the organization existed in Ethiopia. So that person had no idea on how the culture is or how things are run. Um, he is an amazing businessman, but didn't know how business was run in Ethiopia. So trying to run it on, on how you ran it on the US side uh, could save you up on, for, for failure. And I think uh, why Care 117 uh, was successful is was that because, uh, you know, I my team here 
trust me on how to make a decision in Ethiopia and how to run the organization in Ethiopia, how to run the bureaucracy that existed or hurdle through the bureaucracy that exists um, in Ethiopia. And, and my, you know, my team in Ethiopia trusts Ashley and her team here to make the decisions for us. So that partnership on, on so when you start an international business, always incorporate uh, an, a national that you run the business at, because that is really going to help you uh, run the, the, the company better. Uh, and I think one of this, our success stories is because uh, Carry 117 is run and found by a national in Ethiopia, because I know how to help Ethiopians. I know what the problem in Ethiopia is, and I know how I can solve this uh, in Ethiopia better. Uh, and Ashley runs uh, the U.S. organization, and she knows uh, best on how to run the organization on the Ethiopia, on the state side. So um, I think that is really the big thing that I have taken away from my past experiences on how to do business internationally. I, I love that you said that because there are many times like we're looking at a situation or a problem and I'll say what I think and he'll say to me, because I only I can only see a problem through the eye, the glasses of how I see the world. Like this was my experience. This is how I would solve it. This is what I think about it. So I'll say something to him and he'll be like, I, I understand what you say, but let me explain why it's this way. And then he tells me all this backstory and he says, which is why we need to approach it this way. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. I had no idea. And so like, Part of the tensions like that we've had to work through is like, I, I've had to let go of thinking I know anything about it. And I, he does such a good job of teaching me. And I, tr I try to do a good job of teaching him what I know in our culture. Like, Hey, here's who our customer is. And this is what they're going to think when someone asks this question, this is what they're looking for. Not this, you know? And so we have lots of conversations about that. I got just to jump on that. I would also say whether it's an international organization or a domestic organization, social enterprise. I, I kind of work for two, Carry 117 internationally. Well, I guess Orange is also a social impact company um, globally. But I would say um, one of the things I've learned is just the benefits of networking with people who are doing something similar to you. I, that's why I love this podcast so much. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's easy to think, no, we're going to do it a certain way. And it's like, there are so many organizations we've partnered with in Ethiopia where we're like, hey, this is the tension we're experiencing. Have you experienced this? Like, what have you done? You've been around longer than us. Like, how did you solve this? Right. And so not looking at other organizations as competition, but as partnerships, which requires a lot of time and getting to know each other and like choosing who's a partner that's doing ministry and outreach and good work in a way that you feel like you want to partner with them. So it doesn't mm -hmm. look bad on your organization as well. I would say like just leveraging that and leaning into resources like this podcast that can help get you miles down the road and, and not feel like you're starting from scratch because nothing we do is new. Mm -hmm. Somebody's doing it somewhere in the world. Let's learn and contextualize it for Ethiopia. So Absolutely. it's been, I think that's been a huge learning thing. And then just the cultural thing that we both learned, like, that, you know, sometimes his view of a foreigner and what he thinks that they're being disrespectful. I'm like, that's not disrespectful. Like we had this, I told you about the towels. Like we had this whole conversation. He's like the people in the St. Our guest house, they just don't care. Like they put their towels on the ground. <laughs> they put their bath towels on the ground. They don't know how expensive they are. And I was like, do you know why they do that? And he's like, they don't care. And I'm like, no, literally we're told to do that in hotels yep. in the U S like <laughs> put your towels on the ground. If you're done with them, they're trying to help you. And he's like, really? And like, yes, like, or you don't have a bath mat, right? When you get out of the shower, they don't want to fall. That's why they're putting it on the ground so they don't fall. And he's like, 
oh, so like his view was they're being rude and they don't care. And I'm like, literally, they're trying to honor you. Like, and not, and so it was just those kind of conversations that like, let's talk about what we think this means and what can we learn from it so that, and, but it requires a lot of trust. I mean, we're 10 years into this working partnership and it's not been easy, but it's been the most life-giving thing. So. Wow. So that's amazing, guys. Thanks a lot for all of the things that you have uh, taught us today. Uh, it's been a great talk. So let's start to wrap this up. How can our listeners connect with you? And of course, how can they buy your products? Uh, please share with us. Oh my goodness. All of that. You can connect with us and buy your products on carry117.com. C-A-R-R-Y 117.com. Um, our store is there and there's a page that you can reach out and you can connect with us on social media too. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. DM us, tag us. We're here. Um, and if you need an email, you can email us at hello at carry117.com and it automatically goes to both Hanok's email and mine. So yeah. Yes. And please go on and buy their gorgeous products. And, um, they have a lot of very loyal fans for good reason, not just because this it's, uh, thankfully it's becoming less rare, but to have not only a good mission, but also a good product and not having to rely just on a good story, but you guys, you guys have both. And I mean, it's clear you're incredibly passionate about your work, but also your products are beautiful and people love them and are able to love them for a very long time. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, guys. I'm so excited to have you on there and expose more people to your mission and to all the amazing things that you're doing. And I'm, yeah, hopefully we'll sell some more bags. And as they said, bulk orders, wholesale orders, customized orders, they'll make it happen, whatever you need. So please go on and talk to them and um, look at all the things that they have to offer. So for Moni and I, thanks so much for everyone for joining us today. Um, again, please go on. And if you enjoyed this episode, we've got more for, um, for you from the past year. So please go on and listen to the Logistics with Purpose podcast series on Supply Chain Now and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for being here.